It would be an almost perfect bookend for the decade. A tense meeting in the Dragoon Mountains in early February 1869 perfectly mirrored an equally tense one in the Chiricahuas in February 1861. Captain Frank W. Perry sat across from the rather imposing, both physically and metaphorically, person he had come to treat with. He was asked, quite bluntly, what he was doing out here. Perry responded back coyly, saying that he had come just to survey the country and, of course, meet with his distinguished counterpart. The other man wasn't having it. He responded bluntly, You have come to kill me. It was a fair observation. Many of Perry's army brethren had tried, and I suspect many would have used such an exceptional meeting as this as an excuse to pull off an ambush. But Perry didn't attempt anything. He just talked, gauging the reaction of the man before him. And when they were done talking, remarkably, they went their separate ways. But most remarkable of all was that after nearly a full decade of raiding and killing and swearing revenge, the great Chiricahua chief Cochise was finally ready to start thinking about making a peace with the Americans. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 58, We Must Live in Bad Places. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we took another whack at territorial politics following the machinations that saw Tucson finally become the capital of Arizona. Unfortunately for the old Pueblo, we also saw the rise of Phoenix, the city that would eventually wind up with that title permanently. You may have noticed also last week that we finally dipped our toes into the 1870s after spending more than 20 episodes in the 1860s exploring the Bascom Affair, the Civil War, the creation of Arizona as an official U.S. territory, the Wallapai War, and so on and so forth. But before we leave this turbulent decade in the rearview mirror forever, we need to wrap up that one last lingering thread that has also occupied so much of our time, namely Cochise and his Chiricahua Raiders. Now, the last time we dealt with Cochise was back in episode 53. We left off in the early winter of 1866, and Cochise had spent a year retreating down into Mexico, popping up in Arizona, retreating down into Mexico, popping up into Arizona, etc., etc., etc. All the while, the army was doing its level best to play whack-a-mole against him, mostly by destroying any Apache rancherias that they had come across. So, in early 1866, Cochise was once again down in Mexico, waiting for the heat to cool off before he could again pop up in Arizona and set things boiling all over again. However, several factors had come into play that would lead to Cochise spending most of the remaining 1860s in Mexico, beyond the reach of the Americans who were salivating at the thought of stringing him up. While he continued to attack with impunity, Cochise was also experiencing the attrition that came through constant warfare. 
As we discussed several episodes back, supplies seem to always come up short. A natural byproduct of your enemy burning every single one of your camps that they can find. The Great Chief was also starting to lose allies. I've mentioned several times Francisco, the Eastern White Mountain Apache leader who often teamed up with Cochise to continue the brutal conflict against the Americans. Well, Francisco had been captured and was being held by soldiers out of Fort Goodwin for his role in an attack the previous year. And in November 1865, Francisco was shot by these same soldiers, ostensibly while trying to make an escape. I have no proof of this, but shot while escaping is pretty much a euphemism at this point for soldiers straight up killing notable Apache prisoners, so I have to believe Francisco was executed unceremoniously. As if the death of his companion wasn't enough, it appears also that the Chiricahuans had fallen out with other hostile Apache bands, such as the White Mountain and the Pinals, which meant less resources to call on for future raids. But despite the odds being stacked against him, Cochise saw time and time again that resistance was the only way. The latest evidence for this course of action is what is known as the Bean Treaty. Back at the top of episode 46, I briefly mentioned an incident where a Cheheni leader under Cochise named Victorio tried to make peace in early 1865. Ideally, Victorio hoped to avoid being sent to the disaster that was the reservation at Bosque Redondo, and to be able to have his people live somewhere along the Gila or Mimbres rivers. These talks ultimately went nowhere because at that point they were still dealing with General Carlton, who had set up Bosque Redondo and could be more than a little stubborn. But in late 1865, Victorio tried once again. He and some men rode into Pinos Altos in New Mexico to try and work out a peace that would avoid A, being exterminated by the Americans, and B, having to go to Bosque Redondo. What happened next is called the Bean Treaty either because the Americans served a dinner of beans to the Apache peace seekers, or because a settler named Sam Bean was present. Unfortunately, by this point, no one trusted anyone else, so the Americans, in a premeditated attack, ambushed several Apache who were drinking coffee in a home, killing three of them. It is said that Victorio himself was shot in the cheek during this incident. So, yeah, the Bean Treaty didn't turn out to be so much of a treaty as yet another double-cross. Victorio, who had twice now tried to find some measure of peace, became almost as embittered as Cochise, and three weeks later retaliated by killing four soldiers and wounding another near Fort Cummings. And the vicious cycle continued. Meanwhile, Cochise and those directly under him were down in Mexico around Janos, that old safe haven for whenever they had to make a hasty exit from Arizona. Word soon leaked out to American military commanders that Cochise was down at his favorite spot in Mexico. Lieutenant Colonel Edward Willis out of Fort Selden, near modern Radium Springs, New Mexico, got word of the great chief's location and decided to act. Willis was actually able to get permission to enter Mexico with a small force to try and surprise the Apaches at Hanos. Taking 45 men, Willis marched to Fort Cummings, where he gathered an additional 25 soldiers before plunging straight toward Hanos. 
Unfortunately, the Apache were a step too quick for him, and they had all fled to the nearby mountains by the time he made it to the city. So this attack became just another in a long line of examples of how the army could never quite seem to get the crushing victory over the Apache that it clearly desperately wanted. This is where we get into General John Sanford Mason, who we mentioned a few episodes back was removed from his post as military commander for Arizona after only a year because there had been no improvement in the situation. I almost feel a little sorry for Mason, who was given an impossible task and then not any resources with which to do it. He would be attacked from all sides, with Cochise biographer Edwin R. Sweeney saying that the locals attacked the army with remarks such as they, quote, cannot protect themselves, much less than people. Few or no Arizonans die a natural death, end quote. Of course, I can't feel too badly for Mason as he advocated a policy of simply killing every adult Apache man while rounding up the rest to throw on a reservation that would be policed by soldiers. And believe it or not, Mason's idea wasn't the worst one out there. One writer from San Francisco proposed the quote-unquote simple plan of buying Baja California from Mexico for $10 million and using that for a reservation. Then, the U.S. government should spend $30 million to round up slash drive all the Apache there. And finally, you place a bunch of forts at the top of the peninsula to keep the Apache in line and threaten to withhold food if they misbehave. Problem solved. Fortunately, no one listened to, let alone tried to implement, this plan that completely misunderstood, well, everything about the situation. Those living in southern Arizona, who understood this situation pretty well, went back to the old Spanish model and tried to persuade the non-hostile Apache bands to protect slash fight against their wild brethren. Leaders in New Mexico thought they could induce the Pinal and Coyotero Apache to act as guides for the army to hunt down hostile bands, while people in Tubac went ahead and hired Apache Monsos as mercenaries. This strategy paid off, somewhat, in early 1866, after Cochise made a raid up the Santa Cruz and Sonoida Valleys, striking at the San Rafael Ranch near modern Rio Rico. The group burned some of the ranch and stole more than 60 head of cattle before retreating. The Apache Monsos were quick to jump on their trail, having been armed and supplied by Estevan Ochoa out of Tucson, who I plan to talk about next week. The small group left Tucson in late April, and by the first week of May, they had found a rancheria, which they claimed was the base of operations for Cochise himself. The attack was swift and brutal, with the leader of this rancheria unable to rally his warriors before being killed. The scalp of this leader, along with the scalp and ears of three others, would be taken by the attackers as proof of the deed. But if you have learned one thing from our time talking about the Apache, I hope it's that one attack always leads to another. Three weeks later, Cochise and 100 men would steal the cattle herd from Camp Wallen, which sat along Babacomari Creek between the Huachuca and Whetstone Mountains. 
The real irony here is that Camp Wallen had been established just three weeks earlier for the sole purpose of preventing Cochise and his Apache from making incursions from Sonora. Well, that clearly didn't work. Cochise would spend the rest of 1866 in Mexico, though raiding across the border continued unabated. It was said that Apaches would show up at Hanos and other cities every Saturday like clockwork to trade their plunder for ammunition. Meanwhile, with Mason gone, the army went through a few different commanders in a matter of months before General McDowell up in San Francisco subdivided Arizona into five different sub-districts, hoping that it would make leaders and troops more responsive. The Americans may have had their hands full trying to deal with Cochise, but he soon would start getting squeezed from a different and unexpected side. The Mexicans. We've dealt with Mexico's problems at length on this podcast, but that didn't mean there weren't still people willing to take the fight to the Apache if they had to. One of these was an Indian fighter named Cayetano Ozeta, who led a small force of Chihuahuans that managed to surprise Cochise in his camp in the Boca Grande Mountains northeast of Hanos in late December 1866. Cochise would end up fleeing back to the Chiricahua Mountains and other ranges in southern Arizona and northern Mexico. He planned a large party to fall onto Sonora, take a bunch of captives, and then trade them with Ozeta for Apaches who had been taken hostage, but that plan was found out. Instead, Cochise directed his warriors northward into Arizona. Hostile Apache were seen near Fort Bowie in February 1867 and were probably responsible for the death of a mail rider in the area. But Cochise's real target was the Maori mine near Patagonia, which had only a handful of Americans, but a large stockpile of rifles and ammunition. The attack on the mine seemed to start off well, but despite one man being killed and another seriously wounded, the Americans were able to make it inside a house on the property. The Apaches surrounded the place and even tried to burn it, but were repulsed by the surprisingly well-armed men inside the structure. Meanwhile, two men came upon the mine and instantly left to get help, leaving Cochise to pull back to a nearby hill and consider his options. Eventually, fearing what reinforcements the Americans might send, he retreated. And this was just a taste of things to come. 1867 would see Cochise's fortunes changing rapidly, as both the Americans and Mexicans would ramp up their efforts to put an end to Apache raiding on either side of the border. For the Americans, Colonel Thomas Crittenden, who would have an outpost named for him in southern Arizona, declared Cochise to be the top priority and sought to beef up the number of scouts at outposts such as Fort Bowie. However, you may have noticed that the army is more reactive than proactive, so this move did little to actually halt Apache raiding. Changes down in Mexico, however, would put the real pressure on Cochise. First off, as I mentioned back in episode 52, by this point, the Mexicans were done dealing with the French, so the Apache once again became the biggest existential threat out there. 
Secondly, the states of Sonora and Chihuahua actually managed to cooperate and send out coordinating armies, which was nearly unprecedented. You might remember that back in the 1840s, troops from Sonora had actually invaded Chihuahua because they felt the neighboring state was aiding and abetting Apache raiders. Finally, everyone decided to fudge the international border a bit, and Mexican troops would go up into Arizona and New Mexico, while American troops would drop down into Sonora and Chihuahua, ending Cochise's hide-and-seek game of always being in the wrong country for whichever army currently wanted to kill him. In April 1867, Ozeta, the Mexican Indian fighter, managed to find and destroy a rancheria in the Chiricahua Mountains. The loss of warriors and supplies was a heavy blow to Cochise. However, one loss had not taken the spirit out of the Apache chief, who struck Tubac itself on June 13th, killing an American, wounding two others, and stealing 60 head of cattle. Detachments were sent out, and one managed to come across a small group of Apache in the Chiricahua Mountains, killing three warriors. This convinced Crittenden that Cochise could be found in those mountains, and ordered a pincer move, with troops moving into the Chiricahuas from the west and the east. However, this move was easily spotted by Cochise, who slipped once again into Sonora. This was incredibly frustrating for the Americans, and one soldier summed up Apache fighting as, quote, Chase them, and they sink into the ground or somehow vanish. Look behind, and they are peeping over a hill at you, end quote. But while the Americans were cursing their enemy, the Mexicans were busy taking the fight to them. Lieutenant Colonel Angel Elias of the Sonoran Army was having great success with regular patrols of the border, and all through July 1867 was having remarkable luck finding and killing groups of Apache throughout the state. Of course, this caused the Apache to retaliate the following month, hitting various settlements up and down Sonora. Newspapers, both Mexican and American, began to report that hostilities were worse than they had been in years, and that... In the words of one San Francisco newspaper, the Apaches were overrunning Sonora. It's just about here that Sonora once again pointed the finger at Chihuahua, especially Hanos, and claimed they were still a safe haven for Apache to sell their plunder and kept the cycle of violence going. But this accusation didn't crack Mexican solidarity as it might have done in the past. A board of inquiry was formed to investigate these claims, which actually led to the state of Chihuahua sending troops to Hanos in early 1868. This is huge. The city had not seen regularly stationed troops since they were pulled out back in 1858. So Cochise had been able to find merchants willing to trade with him in Hanos throughout the 1860s. The market down there was so notorious that one American officer called it a den of thieves. But with the new presence of Mexican soldiers, it shut down the Apache's lifeline to trade for more arms, bullets, and liquor. Combined with the newly aggressive Mexicans, who were unexpectedly actually cooperating with each other, the closure of Hanos tightened the screws on Cochise, who now needed to retreat northward into the United States. Cochise thought he was safe laying low in the Peloncillo Mountains, which sit on the border between Arizona and New Mexico, north of I-10. However, in February 1868, 
Mexican soldiers managed to capture a raiding party of Apache in Chihuahua, and one of the captured warriors let it be known exactly where Cochise was. A small force led by Ozeta crossed into Arizona and made a beeline for Cochise's camp. For the first time in a long time, I can report that Cochise did not see this attack coming. The Mexicans found his camp and managed to wound several warriors, and the Apache were forced into a fighting retreat while the Mexicans captured the rancheria. However, the corollary to this was that the Mexican soldiers would then continue to be harassed by the Apaches in the mountains before they wisely pulled back. But it must be pointed out that they had gotten the drop on Cochise, completely and utterly. That's something the American army had failed to do for years now. After this, the great chief would not be seen again until May 1868, when he and his men would again attempt to steal the herd from Fort Bowie and harass mail lines. The Apache also managed to kill or capture four men in Apache Pass around this time, with their mutilated remains being found later. However, during the summer of 1868, Cochise must have felt the walls closing in. He sent out another round of peace failures to Hanos, which fell through. The Americans were sending more troops to the area, and the resurgent Mexicans were not letting up on any of their pressure. He would eventually retreat to the Mogollon Mountains, north of the Gila River, to avoid the military forces being sent against him. It's a good thing, too, because the Mexican soldiers continued to find and fall upon unsuspecting Apache rancherias through the summer and fall of 1868. But while Cochise personally escaped these raids, his band took heavy losses. The next year, he claimed that he'd lost some 100 people, though he claimed most died from sickness. Sweeney speculates he meant lead poisoning from, you know, all the bullets being fired. Around this same time, Arizona's new district commander remarked that Cochise's band, quote, have just been well thrashed in Mexico, end quote. In November 1868, we get a definitive account of Cochise being in Arizona and meeting with the Coyotero Apache near the future site of Fort Apache. The account is definitive because Cochise unexpectedly ran into an American trader who he robbed for all his goods. Now, the fact that Cochise was meeting with the Coyotero Apache is significant because it shows that he has now gone far afield from traditional Chiricahua territory. In fact, many people in Arizona were skeptical about these reports on his whereabouts because the Great Chief had always roamed southern Arizona and Mexico with impunity. Some of his people even began to appear at Fort Goodwin on the upper Gila in Arizona, causing the commander to write to Tucson for instructions. His orders were pretty basic. Give rations to all those who lived on a reservation. Continue to fight those who did not. As for Cochise, the orders were, quote, If he wants to come in, he must surrender himself and family or leave them as hostages, end quote. Perhaps because of this hardline stance, or because of a malaria outbreak at Fort Goodwin, Cochise did not come in, despite high expectations that talks would actually occur. Instead, Cochise decamped for the Dragoon Mountains to stay for the winter. 
But remarkably, he somehow got word out to Arizona's military commander that he was ready to talk and maybe, just maybe, make a peace. So it was on January 20th, 1869, that Captain Frank W. Perry left Fort Goodwin with a detachment of soldiers and a Coyotero Apache guide to parley with Cochise. After marching for two weeks, they made it to the Dragoons. On February 6, 1869, Cochise met with Perry. Believe it or not, this was the first time that Cochise had met face-to-face to parley with an American officer since the disastrous Bascom Affair, which had happened nearly eight years before to the day. We do have an account of this remarkable meeting that ran in the Arizona Minor newspaper on March 20th, 1869. In it, Cochise is described as, quote, about six feet, two inches, strongly muscled, with mild, prominent features, hooked nose, and looks to be a man that means what he says, end quote. During this interview with Perry, Cochise would admit to having been wounded twice. The first was 12 years beforehand near Santa Cruz, and the second was in the neck near Fronteras in 1867. This bit is interesting mainly because there was a ton of rumor and hearsay and report out there of Cochise having been wounded or even killed in this or that engagement over the years. So this is as close as we have to learning the truth straight from the horse's mouth. Cochise is also on the record for openly distrusting Americans specifically because of the Bascom Affair. This is the source of that quote I used at the end of covering the Bascom Affair when Cochise said, quote, I tried the Americans once, and they broke the treaty first. The officers, I mean. This was at the pass. End quote. A little further down, after saying that he and his people would not go into Fort Goodwin, the great chief said, quote, I have not 100 Indians now. Ten years ago, I had a thousand. The Americans are everywhere, and we must live in bad places to shun them. End quote. Cochise also asked for bread, tobacco, and blankets from Perry, which the captain gave, though he said, quote, the soldiers went hungry for about three days. End quote. Eventually, Perry and his men continued on to Fort Bowie without having extracted any promises from Cochise. The great chief had experienced a hard several years, but still wasn't ready to submit to American rule and a reservation quite yet. As Sweeney notes, he, quote, preferred the precarious life as a free Apache to the inherent restraints at Fort Goodwin, where smallpox and other sickness prevailed, end quote. It will still be several more years before Cochise would be ready to give up on that free but precarious existence and eventually pass the baton of belligerent Apache foe to Geronimo. But we are going to leave things here for this week and return to the rest of Cochise's story in a coming episode. As it is, we brought everything up to the cusp of the 1870s, which is a crazy decade in and of itself. However, I decided to again push pause on the forward narrative instead of diving headlong into that next chapter of our story. Seeing as we only have two more episodes until my wedding hiatus, I want to try something different for the next couple of weeks. So join me next episode, 
when we will spend some time rounding out the life and times of some of the leading men of the territory, and the otherwise colorful characters who have been at the periphery of the main story this whole time. We'll wrap up the life of Pauline Weaver and Jack Swilling, talk about the brothers William and Granville Owry who managed to overcome their Confederate past, and learn about Estevan Ochoa and Charles Trumbull Hayden, who made fortunes and prominent lives off of shipping in goods to Tucson. And the week after that, I will finally get the chance to tell the story of the Pennington family, a pioneer tale so tragic that it needs a whole episode to do it justice. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.